I'm going to be talking today about uh, lipid droplets, uh, metabolic disease, and uh, the light of evolution. And you may recognize the uh, the, the uh, quote: "Nothing in biology." May I ask you? Sorry, nothing in biology makes sense except in the light of uh, evolution. And so, what I'm going to try to do today is to weave in some evolutionary aspects to lipid droplet biology, and we'll see how it goes. So, first. Um, Allusion to um, uh, evolution is this Ascent of Man cartoon, where you see that um, somewhere in the last 30 years, there's been an increase in the incidence of obesity and all the diseases associated with obesity, such as diabetes. So one thing is for certain here is that in the last 30 years, our genes haven't changed, what's changed the environment. It's basically this organ right here in the brain that's really driving the hypernutrition. And as much as we like to focus on fat tissue as being the culprit on all this, if the individual didn't have fat and, were, and looked like this, this is an electrodystrophic state, they would be absolutely diabetic. So the fat tissue really is the hero in all of this. It basically tries to cope with the excess nutrition. And the reason for this from an evolutionary standpoint is the fact that once the decision was made evolutionarily to utilize fatty acids as a long-term substrate for energy. Fatty acids are toxic, and so you need to evolve a means of storing uh, fatty acids in the non-toxic form, which is triglycerides. So how's that done, and how are lipids mobilized? So this sort of gets at that general point I just made. Fatty acids are toxic, and fat tissue is an organized tissue, a specialized tissue that sequesters fatty acids in the non-toxic form. And one of the current uh, hypotheses about uh, insulin resistance and diabetes is that once the capacity of adipose tissue is exceeded, then fatty acids and their products begin to accumulate in other tissues such as muscle, liver, beta cells, producing dysfunction that ultimately results in, in diabetes. So at a systemic level, fat tissue supplies the rest of the body with fuel, fatty acids, and tightly controls the supply with the demand. In addition, we also know that fat is stored locally within tissues in very small amounts compared to adipose tissue, but nonetheless, it's very uh, important. And so at two levels, one at the systemic level and one at the local level, control of fatty acid delivery and meeting matching supply with demand is extremely important for overall insulin sensitivity. And I'll be talking about um, mechanisms that are involved in, in both of those. Okay, so some of the basic the uh, features of intracellular lipid storage and mobilization. I'm going to really be focusing on mobilization for the most part. But one thing you should know, first of all, is that lipid is stored as triglyceride, as the non-toxic form, in specialized organelles, which we call we call lipid droplets. For a long time, it was thought that the fat was stored in sort of uh, inert, uh, biologically inert uh, inclusions in cells. We now know that that's not the case, that lipid droplets are bona fide organelles and that they have a complex and cell-specific proteome. So the proteome that's on a muscle lipid droplet is different than the proteome that's on a fat cell lipid droplet, so it's highly specialized. And the lipolysis, which I'll be talking about today, involves the orderly trafficking, as you might expect for an organelle, of lipolytic effectors at the surface of the lipid droplet. And finally, what sort of ties us all together is an ancient family of proteins called the hairy lipids that play a central role in 
basically assembling, organizing the lipid droplet and uh, governing the trafficking to and from the lipid droplet. And that varies in a cell and tissue specific fashion. So a little bit about the structure and evolution of uh, mammalian plant proteins. So basically you can sort of divide them into two functional domains. There's the uh, PAT domains, stands for perilipin adipofilin tip 47. On the end terminus, it's about the first 200 amino acids or so. This is involved in targeting the protein to the droplet surface. And then uh, general, the two-thirds of the protein is what I would call a regulatory domain. And this mediates uh, specific interactions with lipolytic effectors, proteins that are involved in lipolysis. It also has numerous uh, sites for regulation by protein kinases. So regulation with lipolytic defectors and uh, upstreams uh, signal transductions. This is a schematic of the uh, plausible, likely evolutionary history based upon symphony analysis of the plin proteins in mammals. So we have plin 1, which is sort of on its own branch in evolution. And then you have another branch that contains PLIN2 and PLIN3-like uh, proteins. Uh, PLIN2 is ADRP, PLIN3 is TIP47 is a more common name. These are all localized on chromosome 17, so it's a, a relatively recent uh, chromosomal duplication. And so what's driven the evolution of these proteins, I think one could argue, is two things. One is uh, where they're made and who they interact with. And so. I'll be talking today about uh, PLIN1 and PLIN5. PLIN1 is found almost exclusively in fat cells, and I'll show you it's involved in regulating protein kinase A-dependent lipolysis, and it does this by acting sort of as the traffic cop on the lipid droplet surface. In addition, I'll be talking about PLIN5, which is also called MLDP, muscle lipid droplet protein. And it's very interesting in that it's uh, found in muscle, in particular oxidative muscle, and uh, it's involved in um, lipolysis and has a specific interaction with some of the correlatic machinery. We're not going into some detail about that in a few minutes. So I'm going to start off, I think, with, uh, with fat cell lipolysis. So if you go to any textbook on fat cell lipolysis, this is probably what you'll see, uh, what we call the barrier translocation model. So the idea here is that you have a lipid droplet and it is coated with perilipin. So perilipin acts as a barrier, protecting the lipid from attack by glycases. So it basically, the hypothesis is that it encases the lipid droplet and these glycases would very much like to attack the lipid droplet, but they can't because they're physically uh, incapable of doing that. Under the stimulated condition, it's thought that, the hypothesis is anyway, that Perilipin gets phosphorylated, that breaks down the <coughs> and allows the lipases to translocate to the droplet surface and produce lipolysis. So this is sort of the state of knowledge when we got involved in the field. And the way we got involved really was to do, we were doing something entirely different, looking at um, sort of imaging. And um, this actually got started with, a, with, a, uh, with Shopping Moore, who's from UC Berkeley, doing a sabbatical in my lab at the time. And so, um, we were looking, doing some confocal microscopy, looking at uh, your standard 3T3L1 cells grown on a flat surface, this is a single cell, and you can see the multiple lipid droplets, these are stained with perilipin, and as you would expect, every lipid droplet has lots of perilipin on it. 
Now these aren't fat cells. Okay, so if you grow a, a fat cell in a 3D culture, so now they begin to generate larger lipid droplets, okay? What you find is that perilipin is concentrated on the smaller lipid droplets, and these larger lipid droplets that begin to form have relatively low, low perilipin on them. In fact, I don't know if you can see this, but it seems to be on sort of line-like structures. So this is quite inconsistent with the idea that it's a, a, an optic barrier. So really what you want to know is what a real fat cell looks like, and so we can do this. And so this is amino of a real fat cell uh, from a mouse, and it's kind of focal 3D projections. It's like 20 or 30 different slices that are assembled in 3D. And you can see it's sort of a amorphous, fuzzy-like, mat-like structure. And there are vast regions of the unilocculus, one big lipid droplet, could be 50, 100 microns in diameter, are have no periliberal whatsoever. So, from a structural standpoint, we would say that the barrier model is implausible. It has to be doing something else. So a lot of people are resistant to this idea. So we've gone on to do some uh, correlative confocal transmission electron microscopy using fluoronanogel, where we can image the uh, surface of the lipid droplet using fluorescence confocal and take that same sample, the same grid, and do an EM on it to get a much higher resolution. So this is the fluorescence image, and it looks like perilipin is pretty dense, but you can see some regions where there's absent, uh, there's no perilipin in your fluorescence. If you go to EM, you really see quite clearly that uh, the, the perilipin molecules are in strain-like structures and vast regions, you know, 99% of the surface of the lipid drop is not covered with perilipin. And when you think about it, the whole idea of making protein to block a whole lipid droplet surface it seems kind of implausible, very inefficient way of regulating lipophilus. So what this suggests from a structural basis is that probably what perilipin is doing is something a little bit more elegant, which is regulating trafficking of effector proteins. And so um, that's where we sort of got involved in this. And about the time that we really delved into this, uh, this was sort of known to be the core lipolytic machinery. And so you have perilipin-1 that's on the lipid droplet. You have uh, hormone-sensitive lipase, which is sort of the classic lipase in lipolysis. You have ATGL, which is a relatively recently known lipase, uh, uh, adipose triglyceride lipase. And you have this other protein called ABHD5, which binds perilipin in the basal state and is known to be an activator of ATGL. And so when we got involved in this, people sort of knew this, but they really didn't understand how the whole thing fit together. And so basically we set forth the hypothesis that it was regulated as, as follows. So after protein kinase A activation, you get phosphorylation of HSL and perilipids. We propose that HSL specifically translocates to, the, to perilipin, and perilipin provides a docking site for HSL. Simultaneously with that translocation, we proposed that ABHD5 was kicked off of perilipin where it went to activate ATGL. So this is a dynamic model. Um, let, me, let me just go through this a little bit further. Um, so ATGL, we now know, is a triglyceride-specific lipase. So it cleaves the first fatty acid, generating one free fatty acid triglyceride. <coughs> Okay, and as it turns out, HSL will act on TG, but it prefers DG. And so you can imagine that these two lipases work in concert in the, in the same region to rapidly mobilize free fatty acids from the lipid droplets. Okay. So 
in order to test the dynamic model, one needs to actually do some imaging in real time and to see whether or not the uh, interactions take place as, as predicted and whether or not they occur in the appropriate time frame. And so one of the first things we did was to make, uh, sorry, uh, tag uh, PLIN with EYFP and uh, HSL. So you can barely make out HSL, it's mostly cytosolic, as you would expect. There's a little bit on the lipid droplets. And if you stimulate the cell, Stimulate the cell, boom, you get this rapid accumulation of homosensitive lipase on a lipid droplet surface. And all of this can be quantified basically within four or five minutes, it's, it's over. It's translocated, accumulated on the lipid droplet surface. And I should point out that um, it's not stuck on the lipid droplet surface because if you do FRAP analysis, bleaching analysis, its half-life is around 30 seconds. So it's really coming on and off, but it, it, it accumulates on the lipid droplet surface. And you can see that these two images are pretty much identical. And what that means is that for a given amount of uh, perilipin, there's a equally, uh, in, an equal increase in the amount of HSL. So this is obviously diametrically opposed to the barrier model because HSL is translocating to the highest concentrations of where perilipin is. And so it suggests that perhaps it might be a, um, a docking site. Now, this is confocal microscopy. The limit of resolution is 250 nanometers. So if uh, HSL and uh, Plin were persons, you would say, well, we know they're, they're in the house together. But we don't know that they're in the bedroom. And we really can't say that they're having an affair. <laughs> so uh, so um, you could next slide. Uh, so the way to approach that is to do a technique that breaks the diffusion barrier, which is FRET. Okay, so FRET, sorry. So FRET uh, takes place when two fluorescent proteins get within eight nanometers of each other. And you can see that when we stimulate the cell, we get a beautiful increase in the FRET signal on the lipid droplet. So this is, is about as good as you can get showing that, in fact, these are uh, interacting and PLIN is providing a docking site for uh, HSL. So that's the first step. The second step is this release of uh, ABHD5. So it had been previously published that if you do long-term stimulation of bat cells, uh, you find ABHD5. ABHD5 is normally bound to plin. If you do long-term stimulation, it's found in the cytoplasm. Okay, but and in fact, that that observation led some to to indicate suggest that ABHD5 could not possibly be involved with lipolysis because if it's in the cytosol, it can't be performed in lipolysis. It has to be at the lipid droplet surface. And so our question was, two questions really is, um, is it is rapidly released? Does it stay on the lipid droplet surface? And does it interact with ATGL? Uh, so the idea here is that um, ABHD5 binds plin in the basal state and it will be on phosphorylation of plin, it's released, so that thing can migrate and interact with ATGL and activate the lipolysis. And so these are the steps that we sought to uh, test. Okay, so this is the uh, FRET signal. So you have a beautiful, strong FRET signal between ADHD5 and plin, and if we stimulate the cell, you can see that the FRET signal goes away, which is exactly what you would expect because the proximity between those proteins is decreased. 
This all can be quantified, and you can see within the first minute of stimulation, there's already a decrease in the proximity of these two proteins. And in fact, it, it's time course very similar to HSL translocation by four minutes or so. Basically, it's all done. This release of ABHD5 from PLIN is entirely dependent upon the phosphorylation of PLIN. So if we mutate two PKA sites near the C-terminus, that completely abrogates the, the decrease in front. So it's not, if, if PLIN cannot be phosphorylated, ABHD5 cannot be released. So that sort of serves that bit of the hypothesis. So the last part of this little story, um, this part of the talk, is of course, we would expect that the release of ABHD5 would allow ABHD5 to interact with ATGL, which gives off the lipolysis effect. And the way we, we study that is using a technique that's uh, a lot of fun to, to do. It's, an amazing, it's actually amazing that it works. And that is protein complementation assay. So what you do here is you take your two interacting proteins, theoretically interacting proteins, and you take a reporter molecule and you put split pieces of the reporter molecule in either protein. So in this case, it's luciferase. Uh, <coughs> each one of these fragments is completely inactive by itself. If these two proteins get together, it reconstitutes luciferase activity. So luciferase activity is your readout of that protein-protein interaction. So here's the idea. So the idea, again, is that ABHD5 can interact with PLIN or ATGL, but not both at the same time. And actually, this, uh, as, a, as an aside, explains why PLIN negatively regulates lipolysis. In any case, what we show here is that, uh, as predicted, uh, you get, uh, by adding a PKA activator, you get an increase in the interaction between ABHD5 and ATGL. That interaction is totally dependent upon the phosphorylation of perilipin. And also, if you use a mutant of ABHD5 that cannot bind uh, perilipin, you don't have any regulation either. And this bottom panel just simply shows that those mutants that prevent the release of ABHD5 from plant also prevent the interaction of ABHD5 with ATGL. So it sort of completes the circle. Now, I, I mentioned that PCA uh, can be done with luciferase. Another uh, uh, variant of that is, is fluorescence. So you can split EYFB into two pieces. And now you can image where the interaction of ABHD5 and ATGL is taking place in the cell. And this, as I said, is important for theoretical uh, reasons because uh, one group says that it's, uh, ABHD5 is in the cytoplasm and therefore cannot possibly be activating lipolysis. And so we can test that. This, this shows you where uh, perilipin 1 is, and this is your signal for the protein complementation for fluorescence. And if you, yeah. Ah, it's the other one, sorry, sorry. Yeah. Okay, so here you get this uh, really uh, nice increase in fluorescence complementation between ABHD5 and ATGL. And the, really, the point here is that these two images are virtually identical. So the, in, the interaction is actually taking place on plan one containing lipid droplets. So that's, um, well, this is a mutant. It, it's not going to show anything. So it's, this is a mutant that can't be phosphorylated. And basically, you get a very small increase. So if you can't phosphorylate perilipin, then it just happens. OK. So that's that 
uh, tissue. What I'm going to now talk about is local lipolysis and the role of perilipin 5. So we all know that uh, there are lipid droplets in the periphery. And um, you know, the first question you could ask is, uh, is there any perilipin 1? Because that would make the whole flight a little bit easier, maybe. I don't know. We'll keep it unemployed, though. But in fact, there is another plan, which is plan 5. So plan 5 is highly expressed in tissues that burn fat, especially the heart. The liver is conditional, depending upon the, the, uh, the uh, fat state of the liver. And if you take a muscle, mixed muscle fiber, and cut it transversely and stain for plan 5, what you find is that plan 5 is highly expressed in the oxidative muscle fibers. In other words, those muscle fibers that burn fat. Okay, so it seems pretty interesting that there's a connection between oxidation of fat and plan 5. So just to give you a little bit of perspective here, um, this is a microdissected muscle fiber that's stained with uh, antibodies to plan 5 and plan 2. And so from here to here is probably, oh, I'm going to say like 30 microns. Each one of these little lipid droplets are quite small. So they're on the order of around three to 400 uh, nanometers. <coughs> really at uh, close to the limits of the, of the microscope here. So that's one thing is compared to the fat cell, which is 50 to 100 microns, these are you know, sub orders of magnitude smaller. And you can see that there, if you just scan this, there are red ones and there are green ones and there are yellow ones. And the idea here simply is that there's a, the lipid droplets are heterogeneous and they probably subserve, they serve different functions. I'm sorry, this is a piece of muscle or just a myocyte? This is a um, my, my, uh, muscle, micro muscle fiber. So, so those cell. inter or intra? They're all over the place. So, so, so is the heterogeneity related to whether they're inter or intra? And do you mean like subsarcolamal or sarcolamal? No, no. So when we talk about lipid and muscle, yeah. Interfere. Oh, they're, 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 they're in the cell. They're yeah, all in yeah, the myocytes. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. The ones that are outside are actually in fat cells. Yeah. So these are these are in within the, the muscle fiber. Okay. So um, you may or may not know that uh, in muscle, it's well known that lipid droplets are closely associated with mitochondria. And this is uh, some some of the EM that we've been doing. So over here, uh, both of these are actually soleus muscle. And so this is a lipid droplet, and this is the mitochondria surrounding the lipid droplet. And you can see that they're really uh, surrounding in close proximity. And in fact, the association of mitochondria with lipid droplets and the lipid droplet size can be manipulated with various kinds of treatments, such as masking or uh, beta 3 adrenergic receptor activation. And you can see there's almost like a stitch-like extension of some of these mitochondria to the lipid droplet, implying that there's some kind of a physical connection. And we're quite interested. It's really, it's really unknown what the mechanism is. We're quite interested in, in that. Also, I'm sorry, Jim, just yeah. the upper left image then. So the, the arrowheads are pointing to the lipid droplets, and in some cases, they actually completely are surrounded. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll show you. Yeah, you'll, you'll, you'll be blown away by this next slide. Oh. I was when we got it. So, uh, <laughs> We've been working with the folks at the National Center for, My for Microscopy and Imaging Research in um, San Diego, and they have this technique, uh, 3D flight um, tomography. So you can look at these in 3D. Okay, so go ahead and start the movie, and I'll talk about it. So what you're looking at here is um, 
a mitochondrion basically engulfing a lipid droplet in a muscle fiber. Okay, and here comes some, here you're beginning just to see the outline of the lipid droplet. It's like this, okay? So, it's like gripping the, uh, the lipid droplet. So, extremely close uh, interaction. These guys, these guys are great, the work that they do. So, so, the, so you're scanning? It's, a, it's done with tilt. And then they okay. do a, represent, a representation in 3D by uh, sort of scanning. This last part is where they're showing off, I think. So here, here's the, here are the myofibrils. Myofibril, uh, here's the mitochondria, and here's the uh, fluid droplet that's encased by the mitochondria. Is this typical? Oh, no. I showed you that soleus muscle. And oh, right. They're, they're, you didn't have to scan them. Oh, no. To... No, 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 no. So this is a little bit different than heart. I'll show you heart in, in a minute. Okay. So in heart, there's a um, a pretty uh, uniform kind of organization. So here are your myofibrils here. This is the mitochondria. This is the mitochondria. And here's the lipid droplet. And you can see this sort of stitching between these. So it's like the, the lipid droplet is like compressed between the two. And I, I didn't point this out, but you probably all know that mitochondria where it are oxidized. Like that's where beta oxidation takes place. And so one can imagine that there's some interesting association here. Uh, and the question we had is, is there any kind of association with perhaps uh, perilipins? And so this is really the limit of optical resolution. And so this is, uh, this is cryo these are cross-sections of heart. And again, you can see these are lipid droplets that are aligned between the myofibrils right here. And uh, the, the red stain is actually for its ATP synthase. It didn't really turn out that well, but it really, it, the, the mitochondria here interposed between the um, uh, lipid droplets. So the core of the lipid droplet obviously is not stained. But the point here is you can see that the fluorescence is on either side. Okay, they, it's not on this side, not on this side, it's on this side. So it's on the side facing the, um, the mitochondria. So this is what we would like to say. And so uh, I'm not sure anyone would believe us, maybe not, maybe not but uh, we can deliver the proof. And so we, we've worked out uh, uh, EM on this. And so here are the uh, gold balls, uh, same for perilipin 5, and you can see that they oppose the mitochondrial surface and they are not opposed to the uh, myofibrils. So specifically on the mitochondrial surface, and if you count hundreds of these, which we've done, you'll find that uh, it's specifically targeted to the surface that opposes the mitochondria. So there's a, even at this level, these are, you know, uh, these are around 200 nanometer uh, or so lipid droplets. There's a sub-organization. So we're quite excited about that. We have a cell culture model of this, and it'll be on this side here. Yeah, that was still on. Sorry, so, I'm sorry. so this is the one that's in the movie. Well, let me point out here is that uh, if you express high levels of PLIN5, you'll see that the mitochondria are now associating with the lipid droplets. And uh, this is the one spot expressing low levels of PLIN5. If you run the movie, uh, you'll see, I don't, you know, I did not be able to see this actually. But these, these, these mitochondria are jumping around, they're moving, okay? And these mitochondria are pretty much pasted, they're not moving at all. So if you knock down PLIN5 with, with the droplets randomly distributed? We're or working on the knockout now. Um, what about in cells? We're uh, coming up with a good cell line that makes PLIN5 alive is a difficult thing. 
So, but we've got the, we're doing data function studies now, and we're actually interested in what the mechanism is. So, um, hopefully we'll get on to that before too long. So, um, so what's some of the functionality of all this? Well, um, in my introduction, I mentioned that one of the things that sets uh, the prey proteins apart is their interaction with the correlated machinery. And so, um, this is a paper published by Bell and, and colleagues in 2008, and they didn't do this for this reason, but the, the data were really compelling when I was looking at them. So they, they took mice and they fed them a high-fat diet for 12 weeks. And they looked at the distribution of uh, various plant proteins, and two members of the correlated machinery, ATGL and ABH5. And I think you can pretty well see that Plan 5 on lipid droplets is upregulated by high fat feeding, and so is ATGL. So this is pretty, pretty interesting. Um, and so we uh, were interested in doing experiments to explain, to, to replicate this and to try to understand whether or not this involves uh, interactions of Plan 5 with ATGL. And so, um, one of the things we found, and I think uh, Tony's indicated <coughs> this, is that you can do with um, a beta-3 receptor agonist in eight hours what 12 weeks of high-fat feeding will do. Okay, so what we do is we inject the animals with this beta-3 agonist, mobilize fat from fat tissue. It's got to go somewhere. It goes to the liver, and within eight hours, you've got a steatotic liver. Okay, and so it's a very robust kind of tool to use, and I don't know if you can see it all that well, but you generate PLIN 5 containing lipid droplets, and now ATGL, which is usually mostly cytoplasmic, is now pasted onto the lipid droplets. This is just the biochemistry of uh, Western blots of purified lipid droplet fractions. And the reason for this, and we published this, so I won't go into a lot of detail, is that we found that ATGL specifically binds to PLIN 5. So this can be shown by FRET and also by direct binding assays and permeabilized cells. So in contrast to PLIN1, PLIN1 excludes ATGL but binds ABHD5 and actually regulates this interaction. PLIN5 actually binds both ABHD5 and ATGL simultaneously. And so it seems to be more involved in assembling a constitutive lipolytic uh, complex in the tissue. And it sort of makes sense, given what we know about the genetic expression of PLIN5 and ATGL. ATGL is regulated by FOXO, and PLIN5 is regulated by PPAR-alpha. So conditions that increase uh, fat utilization, such as fasting, low insulin levels, high fat diet, and so mm -hmm. forth, uh, will uh, increase this assembly of the lipolytic machinery at the lipid droplet surface in, in liver cells. So that's one of the evolutionary adaptations that separates PLIN1 and PLIN5. Okay, now on to um, the last little part of my, my talk, and that concerns um, sort of our comparative analysis. So what I mentioned previously was that in mammals, we've got the five plant proteins, and uh, this, is the, this is what we would expect to be the evolutionary history of these based upon syntony uh, analysis. Now, early on in um, bony vertebrate evolution, there are two whole genome duplications, okay, and so uh, they're called R1 and R2, and this uh, R2 led to uh, PLIN1, which is off on its own branch, and basically PLIN2 and PLIN3-like proteins, which were more recent, okay? So if you take a look at um, 
fish, heliosts, you find something really interesting and amazing, I think. Uh, and that is, uh, you find four plants that represent all four branches of the early uh, genome duplications. So, R2 leads to this T plant, which we call T plant or Telios plant. So, at a superficial level of analysis, what you would say is that uh, in the Telios, they found a use for a T plant that mammals did not find a use for. So, obviously, it was lost in the evolution of, animal, of animals that led to mammals, conserved in the evolution of animals uh, that became uh, Telios. So, we're very interested in this. Um, so I uh, hooked up with uh, a zebrafish guy at Wayne State, uh, Ryan Thumble, and we started looking at this. And so, first of all, what are some of the predictive properties on the, uh, just based on the structure of, of this tea plant? Well, it has a packed domain. That's how we found it. And so one would expect that it's going to target the protein to a monolayer organelle of hydrophobic carbon, which is basically like a lipid droplet. Okay, lipid droplet is a monolayer that has a hydrophobic core. And in addition, uh, this protein has three conserved protein kinase A sites. And what do I mean by conserved? Well, what I mean is that if you look in pufferfish and uh, zebrafish, carp or goldfish, uh, you find uh, this sequence. Now, pufferfish and zebrafish, last common ancestor was 320 million years ago. So uh, our ancestors were still crawling around in the, in the muck, Had, got, hadn't got to land yet. Uh, and so this, this is a successful adaptation that's been maintained uh, for millions of years. So uh, we did the usual kinds of experiments uh, for developmental biologists, and we found out where and when it's expressed in zebrafish. So it's expressed you know, as early as six hours post-fertilization. It comes on really strongly at three days. And it seems to be more or less co-expressed with potential binding partners, ADHD5, this is ATGL, the ATGL homologue. And so the really interesting thing for my talk is where it's expressed. As it turns out, Keeplin is highly expressed in skin, uh, more so than any other plant. And certainly it's much more expressed in skin versus uh, fat tissue. So this is about as far as we could take it for a message. So we but bit the bullet and made an antibody to plant. So the question is, where is it made? And uh, this is the really cool thing. Uh, it's made in a specific cell type in the skin and scales called xanthophores. Okay, so um, it's a beautiful stain of xanthophores. What are xanthophores? Well, xanthophores are, set, are cells that control dynamic red-orange pigmentation. They are the cells in goldfish that make goldfish gold. Okay, and so this is conserved, highly uh, utilized by many, many species, dynamic signaling, the trafficking of uh, carotenoid uh, pigments. And so by dynamic trafficking, what I mean is, here is a, uh, a xanthophore, it says a star-like structure, in the basal state where the, um, the pigment is aggregated in the nuclear region. If you stimulate the cell with porcelain, activate PKA, you get this rapid dispersion throughout the cell. And we can monitor that with fluorescence because the inside of these are carotenoids, which are highly fluorescent. And you can see, you know, these are the, these are the same scales so we can do dynamic imaging. So that's that's uh, really quite compelling. Okay, so what's the relationship here with with perilipins? 
Well, as it turns out, carotenoid pigments are concentrated in a structure called the carotenoid droplet, which, as it turns out, is a subdomain of the ER, exactly paralogous to uh, lipid droplets. Lipid droplets are thought to form in the ER. These definitely form, uh, are part of the ER, actually. They're sort of arrested as the droplets uh, attached to the ER. And so this is uh, sort of the idea in the basal state during the uh, microtubules uh, organizing region. Phosphorylation leads to the dispersion uh, along the carotenoid body of these, these droplets. And so this is an EM image. Uh, this is goldfish now. And so you see these beautiful little droplets. And uh, as it turns out, um, Vicki Kimmler is now in my lab. Uh, when she was doing her graduate, undergraduate, or graduate work, um, worked with John Taylor, and they discovered a protein called P57 that became phosphorylated by uh, PKA and was thought to be involved in this trafficking. Now, they lost the antibody like 10 years ago, but uh, P57 is exactly the size of, of T4. So um, this is an ongoing project. Um, so what we've shown uh, is that um, you can basically, if you follow the immunofluorescence of T-blend, it's exactly uh, coincidental with uh, the carotenoid uh, droplets. And um, this is actually carp. Actually, if you get involved in this kind of work, uh, you're going to end up having to buy carp serum. Carp serum, just as an aside, for those of you who might be interested in this, $10,000 a liter. So uh, there's a big opportunity here. <laughs> anyway, so me being the lab, uh, lab chief, uh, got a fishing license, and in, in, uh, in two hours, I, I had 400 bucks for the serum. <laughs> Uh, anyway, so as it turns out, if you do the immuno EM, uh, uh, keep take you to a Japanese restaurant. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the the carpet car that I caught were like this. They were, my lab was amazed when I brought I hauled them back to the lab. It was, it was quite a, quite a scene. Uh, anyway, this is this is a xanthophore, and you can sort of make out that this heavy labeling of uh, fluoronamical on the. Uh, Droplets. Now, I should point out that these droplets are even smaller than the muscle droplets. These are between 20 and 50 nanometers, so these are tiny. And so, uh, you know, you might not be convinced of this resolution, but we can we can go over the school of engineering and crank it up to 200 kilovolts, and uh, you can see quite clearly the immunogold labeling of the individual carotenoid um, droplets. So we're now working on the uh, the obvious morphoamino knockdowns, looking at structure. And, have something to say about this more in the future. So in summary, um, I hope I've convinced you that uh, plain proteins are involved in both uh, systemic and local regulation, and uh, they're really important for reducing microtoxicity, and that the functional diversity involves adaptations that involve who they, who within the core of the machinery the plain proteins interact with, uh, in particular, ABHC5 and ATGL, and <coughs> more to be learned about how these are targeted to specific subcellular domains, such as interactions with mitochondria. And we're very interested in performing more comparative analysis uh, because uh, big questions in the literature is how the droplets are formed, do they really come from the ER, et cetera, et cetera. We think that uh, this comparative analysis might give us some clues as to how the droplets are formed and uh, <coughs> And with that, uh, 
and should acknowledge people who worked on this. Um, Vicki Kemmler did all of the uh, beautiful EM work. Uh, Moore, as I mentioned, uh, she's now at Lawrence Tech University. Uh, she actually uh, comes to the lab on Fridays to Dean there. She comes along on Fridays and, and works uh, uh, as, I guess, mental uh, rejuvenation. Uh, Gina and John at uh, the uh, USSD uh, with the uh, microscopy center. Ryan is the Zebrafish uh, guy. And of course, uh, support from various agencies. So, thank you. In your model on adipocyte had uh, perilipin, the ABHB, whatever, five, coming off and going to the AP gel. In the liver, with the adrenergic stimulation, you had all three of them together. Well, it's this constitutive. There's no stimulation. In the liver, so a 24-hour fast would be another model for liver. Yeah. Um, but you have this big flux of fatty acid to the liver. So the liver has to detoxify, it makes triglycerides, puts them in a droplet. Why is ATGL moving on to that droplet at that point? Because is there, yeah, in that particular instance, is there a need for like policy of that droplet? Or is it just because with more droplets, at steady state, more ATGL will yeah. be on the droplet? As it, as it turns out, ATGL is probably, and, and ABCD5 are probably involved in lipoprotein production as well. So that could be part of it. Yeah, I mean the liver has wants to unload some of it. So that's so I was thinking in the, the twenty four hour fast where you do get more teaching oh, secretion, you get tremendous oxidation right. rates. Right. You might see uh, a revealing pattern. Yeah, we don't look at that. That's going to be a thing to do. So I guess I have a couple of questions. One is, um, you know, the image that you showed of the mitochondria being you know, basically surrounding the lipid droplet. Two things. One is evolutionarily, is it known? Are there bacteria? Like, how do bacteria deal Yeah, with? as far as I know, there's, there's, yeah, this is something that's uh, arisen after the symbiosis. And there are uh, mechanistically, uh, the op more op the most obvious um, mechanism would be uh, mitochondria associated membrane. So you may know about um, ER and mitochondria associate and it's involved in calcium um, sequestration. And they do so through specific proteins in particular one of these are two. So to the degree, for example, that the lipid droplets retain ER protein, or in the muscle, you know, who knows where they come from? You know, um, there could be something like that going on. And is there ever any evidence of motility of the lipid droplet? I mean, in other words, are they in the muscle? In the muscle, yeah. I would be I would doubt that seriously. At least certainly in the heart, I think that they're they're where they are. They don't move. So then there's formation of mitochondria. So things. I would say the, what, what probably is happening is that the, the lipid droplet is there, and the mitochondria may come to and from it. Okay, because we actually have data for that. That there's a there's a change of mitochondrial association. So, well, aren't the EMs suggesting that in diabetics that there are droplets not associated or further away from the mitochondria? Yeah, there's, so, yeah, there's the issue of subsarcolemal and sarcolemal uh, mitochondria and lipid droplets, and it's all fairly confusing to me. But one, one idea is that you've got lipid droplets that are subsarcolemal that are uh, messing up uh, IRS sigma, insulin sigma, and maybe the ones that are closely associated with the uh, mitochondria are not so readily impacted. I don't know. So 
So do you think that this explains the endurance athletes paradox? Uh, we, yeah, it could. It could. I mean, I think uh, more. We need more data on what the dynamics are between those two, and have a good, um, good handle on how to measure uh, dynamics. So, do the plane two and plane five vesicles have different half-lives? Have different half-lives? Oh, uh, gee, I don't. I don't know the answer. If to you that. did a, uh, you know, something as simple-minded as a pulse chase experiment. With, uh, yeah. I get all these plant proteins tend to have very long half-lives as long as they're on the lipid droplet. Um, but plant five, plant five actually, we've done dynamic imaging of it as well using FRAP, and it comes on and off. And there are two, there are two pools: there's a dynamic pool and a more stationary pool. ADRP is more, um, is more of a resident uh, lipid droplet protein, and so it's probably has a longer half-life. I guess. Great. Based on the model of the adipocyte that you showed right at the beginning, yeah. what would you predict would be the uh, difference in, any, in the mobilization of recently taken up fatty acids as opposed to those that have been resident for a longer period? Yeah. I, the sort of financial analogy, uh, last in, first out, yeah. first in, last yeah. out. Yeah, we, we actually proposed that that might be the case, uh, like, like oh, that, yeah, first, last in, first out. Uh -huh. Because um, when you look at plinth targeting, it tends to be on small lipid droplets, more readily than larger lipid droplets. And so we, we proposed this like six years ago, got killed in our reviews, because everybody knew, you know, everybody knew how pretty they were. Um, so that's what I would propose. Uh, but I think the, that whole area is pretty uh, controversial. People have done experiments on that, and, and there's data both ways. I have some data that suggests that it's not last in first out, but I did it a long time ago. Yeah, so yeah, I was hoping yeah. I might have done it tried repeatedly by labeling the fatty acids in a variety of ways and then pulse chasing and waiting, you know, stimulating with the uh, lipolytic hormones. And I could never convince myself that the stuff that had just gone in was coming out yeah. in any in any preferential way to the larger right. stores. But right. yeah. I, it, might, it might work that way in some tissues versus other, maybe brown fat versus, you know, white fat, it's, I think there's fairly rapid equilibration with right. whether it's human white fat. Yeah, yeah, I think that that's usually the case. So. When you exercise a mouse or, or a human, DGAM1 gene expression goes up, and this business about this <coughs> paradox, I mean, if TWIN5 expression actually goes up. Yeah, we, we've done that, and we didn't really see much. In, in rats, anyway, in rat heart. So I don't know if you pregnancy, there's this sort of emerging story that um, autophagy might be involved in sort of steady state of metabolism in the liver at least. Do you, can you put that into sort of the machinery of sort of the droplets in the liver? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Could you be more decisive? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> is there a mammalian paralog of the carotenoid droplet that you described in Helios? No. No. Sure. Not sure. <laughs> you know what? <laughs> no, but there's some, 
it, when you look at, uh, you know, start reading more broadly about this, there are um, uh, carotenoids in, actually money talks, okay, and so silkworms uh, have a, a, a similar kind of structure, and it's a big deal coming up with yellow silk or orange silk. So, you know, people are actually delving into the mechanism because if you can understand that, then you can, there's money in the line. Maybe ten thousand dollar later. Or should we go fishing or get goose? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I guess one last question: Is it nonvertebrates? Um, what's known about the Clint um, family as it relates to sort of lipid? Yeah, so there are a couple. There's LSD one and two and Drosophila, and they're both involved in lipid. Although the, 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 it's like almost the opposite of what. Right, so, I mean, so you've presented part of sort of two situations. One, sort of in the, in the out of sight where Clint one is, right. you know, functioning sort of in opposite to where Clint five Or is there any sense in the. the um, yeah. I don't think so. Not, I don't think it's been studied to that degree. In terms of, uh, in terms of binding partners and so forth. Right, right. Yeah. I mean, it's known that ATGL is important, you know, for example, but how that links to um, the Flynn proteins, I don't, I think that's a more recent, you know, evolutionary development. Yeah? Do you know what kind of thing is expressed in stereogenic tissue? Flynn 1. It's Flynn 1. Yeah. So Flynn 1 is, is found in lighting cells and, and you yeah, so. This is it's, uh, probably involved in HSL mediating uh, cholesterol ester hydrolysis. Well, thank you very much. <laughs>